0: Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Will you please join me there? Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you guys have noticed, we're having some issues with the lights. We are not trying to create some kind of ambiance. We—it's uh, a good transition. We rent this facility and um, we're having some trouble with a connection. We're going to try to get some different lights set up, so don't let them distract you. Um, We rent this facility, and as many of you know, over the last several months, we have been in communication with another church about two miles north of here. that has a very large facility and a very small congregation. And we announced last Sunday at our Covenant Partners meeting that that relationship and that connection is, is not going to work. They have talked with their denomination, and their denomination has said no, that they are unable to rent that facility to us. And so it puts us at a place where we are continuing to look for a place that is larger. As you know, we're out of childcare space. And on many Sundays, we're at least 80% full in this room. And so we are continuing to look for space. We have a new real estate agent. um, And we're also putting together a team that's larger than just our elders with people who can have this on their mind and be praying and looking. If you're interested in being on that team, come and approach me about it. Um, But we also want to ask that you would join us in prayer and that we could, as a congregation and as a family, Um, Just ask that God would provide that next space uh, that he would have for us to meet in. So I want to take just a minute this morning and um, that we would come together collectively and and pray with that that end in mind. Well, keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, if you would. Paul's going to use a metaphor this morning of clothes in this passage, and uh, I just want to get our minds kind of thinking about that. I don't know if you guys have noticed this before, but the way in which boys think about clothes and the way in which girls think about clothes are very different. Do you know that? Someone ate, you gave, got an amen out of somebody. So I have boys, and that's all we know at our house. And my, I asked Johannes for permission to share this illustration. Our middle schooler, Johannes, he would be content to wear the same thing all week long. And sometimes tries. The other day I walked in his room and he had his favorite white, under armor, collared shirt, meets you know all the uniform requirements, hanging on the end of his bed. And I said, Johannes, what is this? He said, it's my clothes for tomorrow. I said, you wore that today. He said, it's still clean. I picked it up and I said, oh, so what is this? And he said, oh, somebody stepped on it in the locker room. It had a big shoe mark going down the side. After football practice, somebody stepped on it in the locker room, but it's still clean. That's a boy for you. Now, my brother has girls. We do boys. They do girls. So our nieces, he has a new baby that's just a few weeks old, and then he has a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Well, we were with them last spring break, and I saw something completely different. Because Claire, his three-year-old, about every ten minutes, it's like she turns into Superman. Like she goes into a, a booth and comes out someone completely different. Every ten minutes, she would emerge from her room, and she would be Cinderella. Oh, is that Cinderella with your glass slippers on? And the next thing I know, she emerges with her swimsuit on. Still the glass slippers. I guess she's getting ready for a beauty pageant. Oh, you're going swimming. Next, she goes back in. Ten minutes later, she emerges as a mermaid. Oh, Claire, you're a mermaid. Every ten minutes, she's changing clothes. Boys and girls think about clothes very differently. In this passage of Scripture, Paul's actually going to help us in using a metaphor for clothing, he's going to say there's some things that we need to take off and some things that we need to put on. Today's outline is, if you're an engineer or if you're a fill-in-the-blank kind of person, if you're a real type A, you're like, got I get all the blanks filled in? You're going to love it. It's kind of a long outline. Like there's a point that goes with each verse. If you're not like that, doesn't mean a long sermon. I saw a couple eye rolls. <laughs> if you're not like that, then just listen for one kind of main point that the Holy Spirit's calling you to. And Paul's going to say there's some things that we need to take off and some things that we need to put on. The big idea for today is this. Following Jesus is a lifelong relationship he invites us into one day at a time. One day at a time. I know that sounds simple, but I'm guessing that there's no one in the room who's quite got that figured out. And let me just say on the front end that if you think about that like a formula or you think about that like steps, like if I do these steps, then it's going to mean relationship, then you're probably not on the right path, okay? And so this morning, if you hear me encouraging you like A plus B is going to equal C, it never does because relationships aren't that simple, as many of you know. So today we're going to look at what does it look like to live this lifelong relationship that he invites us into one day at a time. The context is really important in Ephesians that we understand it here. Um, Christians have been given gifts. That's what we looked at last week. If you remember through verse 16, we looked at this incredible passage of scripture where it talks about a pest. Remember that apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers—it was kind of the public gifts, the speaking gifts that Paul was talking about that were given to the church. And he, and he ended with this wonderful passage of scripture. He ended in verse sixteen in saying that that when each part is working properly, that the church is built up in love, and that we mature, and that Jesus is the head of the church. And it was just—it was just this beautiful picture of the church. And you think we're often like ready to roll like okay Paul so give us some stuff to do. We've got these gifts and we we all know that we spent chapters 1 through 3 just working on our identity, right? I mean there was the only imperative in those chapters was that one word remember and it was just Paul reminding us over and over and over again this is who you are because of what Jesus has done. Now chapters 4 through 6 is all about how we get active We move from identity to activity. And it's like, how do we live out this Christian life? And Paul says, well, first off, you've been given these amazing gifts. Like, you are a gift to the church. And Paul's got us, like, all ramped up. And then he kind of turns a corner in verse 17. And he says that there's some things that we need to examine in our lives. And so he says that the church is going to grow up when we're all working properly in love. And so the question is, what does it look like for us to work properly? And that's what he gets into in verse 17. What does it look like for us to work properly using these gifts that he's given us? Most of us would think, oh, well that means when all the musicians are playing the right notes... And when all the singers are singing the right songs and, and hitting all the words. When the lights are actually working correctly. When the greeters are greeting and, and, and the coffee brewers are brewing coffee. And when everything is working properly, we're going to grow up in love. That's not what Paul is talking about. He isn't talking in this passage about church programs. In this passage, he's actually talking about church godliness. Godliness. It's surprising. You know, it doesn't really matter how talented you are. If you aren't walking in the ways of Jesus, ultimately you're going to destroy the church. You'll destroy your life. You'll endanger or hurt people who are around you. And so Paul draws us back to the holiness and righteousness of the gospel. It's hard for us to grab hold of how this is important. Like, we're in chapter 4, we're ready to get some stuff done. We're ready to find out how to live the Christian life. Let's do some things. Most of us tend to be drawn to the flashy and the impressive and what's showy culturally. Walk in a Christian bookstore today and you will find books that are mainly one-word titles and they're all impressive words. They're all impressive words. I'm not going to name them, but just go and look. They're impressive words. But Jesus calls us to be more concerned about how godly we are than how gifted we are. And that doesn't, that doesn't mesh very well with the culture that we find ourselves in in the West. Jesus calls us to be more concerned about being godly than being gifted it's why Eugene Peterson would say that the call of the pastor is to be ordinary. What does he mean by that? The call of the pastor is to be ordinary. And I would say the call of the minister, which is all of you. You're ministers because you're all gifted, is what Ephesians has told us, is to be ordinary. Now, not to be ordinary for ordinary sake... But to pursue Jesus in the ordinary stuff of life, to learn the powerful ways of seeing how Jesus is at work in our suffering on Monday as much as in our celebration on Sunday. That is the call of each of us. God's much more concerned with your character than with your accomplishments. And that's why Paul is going to call us back to holiness and righteousness before he concentrates on anything that he's really calling us to do. God is much more interested in who you are becoming than in what you are doing. And that message does not meld well with the world I mean, it has a nice ring to it. God's much more interested in what you're becoming than what you're doing. It sounds good. sounds like something that's tweetable, like something you would write down, maybe put in your journal and say, "I, I need to remember that on Monday. But the American culture will fight us tooth and nail on this at every turn. It's why Paul is, in essence, putting the brakes on the Ephesian church and reminding them, you may be gifted, because they were, And you may be powerful, and they were, and you may be influential, but none of that matters if you aren't putting on Jesus daily. So look in verse 17. He offers some really harsh words. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them do To their hardness of heart, they've become callous, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Make no mistake about it. In this passage, Paul isn't addressing serial killers or child molesters or terrorists only. He is addressing some of your nephews and nieces, some of your sons and daughters, some of your moms and dads. He is addressing people who are lost and who are far from God. And listen to the way that he is describing them. And he describes them in a very dark way. And, and he is saying that there should be a marketable difference between the way in which, if we are following Jesus and putting on him in holiness and righteousness each day, there should be a marketable difference between the way our lives look and the ways of the world. And so he's saying that we must constantly put off the world. That we must put off the world. Because whether we know it or not, we're always being discipled. Some people say, I've never really been discipled before. Not true. We're always being discipled. And we're always being discipled in the ways of the world... Unless there is someone who is discipling us in the ways of Jesus. Unless we're being intentional. And so he says to put off the world. You say, why should I put off the world? Like, is the world really that bad? Our world is changing rapidly around us. Things are being accepted that were not accepted just five years ago. We are thinking of things in the ethical world. Now, you can get a 3D printer and you can print a gun... We've never thought about these things a decade ago. With a 3D printer, you can print a gun or you can print a machine that enables you, through euthanasia, to die within five minutes. A nitrogen machine. It will kill you in less than five minutes. You can print that with a 3D printer now. How do we even begin to think about some of these issues that arise there's so many issues we can't even keep up with them because our world is changing so quickly. And Paul warns us that we must put off the world. And he says, really quickly, three reasons why. Because, the, because worldliness is futile. In verse 17, we must put off the world. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We don't use that word futility a lot, right? I think there's an old Star Trek quote. Anybody watch Star Trek? Resistance is futile. Anybody remember that one? And it um, sounds like something Vader would say. But ultimately here Paul is saying that, that we were created for more. And that this world, as we pursue it, it will be meaningless and empty and useless. Simone Veil, uh, she was kind of a hippie and then philosopher of the 20s and 30s. She came back with this, after looking at the world and after giving up on her lifestyle, this French philosopher said, All sins are attempts to fill voids. What did she mean by that? All sins are attempts to fill voids. Every sin in our life is our attempt to fill that God-shaped void within us that only He can fill. One of my friends, uh, Jim, oftentimes says that we were over-engineered for this world over-engineered for this world. We're looking for something that this world cannot offer. And so Paul says, put off the world because worldliness is futile. Secondly, he says, put off the world because worldliness, look at verse 18, worldliness alienates you from God and leads to a hard heart. It alienates us from God and leads to a hard heart. And I just simply want to remind us that that's true for the Christian as well that it's so important that we listen to the Spirit of God in our lives and that we guard our hearts. It's what the psalmist would say, so that our hearts are soft and pliable and that we, we have a heart that's quick to respond and to hear from the Spirit. And then finally, we're to put off the world because worldliness makes you callous and unaware of your own evil. Worldliness makes you callous and unaware of your own evil. I think this is the scariest one of all. Um, So many people unaware that their ruling passions are actually against God. Like the things that they celebrate the most are actually against God. Paul says sensuality, shameless debauchery, or impurity, riotous immorality, or greed just that insatiable appetite because sin never satisfies us. And I think this callousness of heart is the thing that is the scariest of all. And I'm going to give an example that culturally um, really just sticks out to me and it's, it's poignant, but it saddens me. When I, look at, when I look at this place in which people get to In which their hearts become so callous. I see friends in Midtown who claim to love Jesus. But yet in claiming to love Jesus, culture has so swamped them in the tidal wave and tsunami of sin. That they are now allowing their 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 year old sons and daughters to choose which gender they want to be. And this is not something that's happening in like Southern California. This is something that our kids who are in public school are saying, well, my friend or this person I know who was a girl now sits on the boy's side of the lunchroom, has a different name. And I think we've railed against this in the church in the past and and we've been angry about it. And it's the completely wrong approach to take. When we should be saddened. When we look and we have friends who say. We worship God. But yet we don't believe in him. At the base level as creator. We believe. That we. Have more authority. And more power. To medically. Change the gender of our child. And to let our child. Based on what they feel they are. Make this decision. And their identity is placed not in the hands of God, but in their own hands. And it should sadden us. It should, it should not be a mantra that the church angrily takes on and says, we must stop this, or we must protect ourselves. We should be saddened that there are friends who have become so over. Overwhelmed by the ways of the world, that they are out of step with what the very beginning of the scriptures would have to say that in the beginning God created. Paul moves on and he says, Not only are there things that we should put off, but he says that there are some things that we need to put on. Look with me in verses 20 and following. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. When, when Paul says that we're to put on Jesus daily, I know where you guys are going in your head. You're going up here we go, put on Jesus daily. He's going to say we got to read our Bibles every day. Like, I know where this is going. Let me, let me just step back and say that being a Christian is not about trusting a formula. Like, we, we struggle with this, I believe, all of our Christian lives. Being a Christian is not about trusting a formula. Being a Christian is about developing a relationship with a friend. And those things are far different. And so I think our language matters. And in the church, we've used this term called spiritual disciplines. And and there is a part of that that can be helpful. Because Paul would say things like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so there is some work that is involved. Like from my experience in life, there is nothing worth having that doesn't require some hard work. So spiritual disciplines is not a completely bad term but if it's the only term that we have to work with then I think it's going to pull us more into a formulaic kind of path because when I think about my wife I don't think about it. I need to practice the discipline of sitting down with her and having a conversation. I need to practice the discipline of being a good listener. I need to practice the discipline of taking her out on a date. Oh, it's time to call her. My watch says it's time to call her. Let me practice the discipline of communicating. No, that would not be a relationship. I mean, we might need some of those means to remind us at times. There have been times early on in my life where I actually set a reminder. Don't you laugh, it's true. I needed it. I set a reminder call your wife because I would get so into work. That's a guy thing. We can talk about that later. Um, in the midst of this, spiritual discipline's maybe not the best term. We move on, and, and theologians and pastors have come up with a new term that I like, and it's called means of grace. But if you really start to drill down on this idea of means of grace, it almost sounds like a vending machine. Like, if I show up and put my quarters in, then something better be coming out the bottom. You know? And if it's not, I'm going to get frustrated and start banging on this thing. Like, and so means of grace, like, yes, these are means. prayer and, and singing and scripture reading and meditation. These are means by which we receive the grace of God. But I'd like to propose a different term. Means of communion. I think terms matter means of communion, ways in which we are able, using the natural rhythms of our life, to begin to commune with God. That's what Paul's calling us to in this text. He's saying that we need to put on Jesus daily. And if you look at verse 22, he's saying, first, that we have to get undressed From some things. Look at what he says. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. I don't think Christians are very good at repenting. I think most of us have bought into this lie that repentance is what takes place in a Baptist church when you walk down the aisle and get the short pencil and the little card and you sit at the front and you get baptized and that repentance is something that took place once and then that we're kind of supposed to do it later. But I don't think it happens very often. What's the last thing you repented of? Like what's the last thing that the Lord said that you realized I'm going against God. I need to turn around and I need to say, God, I have sinned against you. Like repentance is, the language in the Bible, an example of of repentance is like, Father, I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a servant. Like that's a repentant heart. That's a heart that says, I didn't get caught, or I'm not just ashamed, or I'm not trying to do better. A repentant heart is one that says, God, I am no longer worthy. And then Jesus said, oh, but you're my son. Put the ring on his finger and put the robe around him. Listen, guys, when we live lives in which we aren't practicing regular repentance, it's like, uh, imagine this. Imagine I'm a runner. We, uh, we're training for a marathon right now. I was running with Andrew and Ben yesterday. And imagine, I'm not only a runner, these guys can attest to the fact that I am also a sweater. And as I get older, like, my shorts, I mean, look like I'm running in a trash bag. I mean, they are so wet. They are just, like, glistening. When I sit down, I've got a pair of shoes right now. They're not even that old, and I can't, if I pick them up, I have to wash my hands because they smell that badly. Like, that's how I'm, I stink. I just, as a runner, I just stink. I can sit down after a run on my front porch, and there is a puddle of water that forms underneath me. I'm just a really old, stinky guy. Can you imagine if Katie said, hey, we got that birthday party to go to. I know you've been running for the last three hours. Hey, throw some clothes on. Let's go. Could you imagine what it would be like if I just Pulled on a pair of jeans over those wet shorts and threw a shirt on and was like, Hey, I'm ready to go. I mean, maybe I could get by for a moment. Maybe Katie wouldn't notice, but when we sat down in our SUV, she would say, Something is ripe in here. And it wouldn't take her long to figure out that it's me. That's a picture of what our lives look like when we try to put on Jesus without repentance. And the way in which most of us do that is through behavior modification. Most of us grew up in this system where we were told to stop doing things or to try harder or to do better. And all that is is behavior modification. And in this passage, Paul is saying, we got to get undressed. We got to let go of some stuff. We need to repent of some things. And repentance is acknowledging that we've sinned against God. But he goes on and he says, not only do we need to repent and get undressed, but look at verse 23. He says we need to change our desires. We need to change our desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Christianity is not an emptying ourselves of our desires. I, I think a lot of us who, who grew up in youth group in, in, a, in a church just felt like, man, Christianity's it might be good, but it's not fun. I mean, everything was like, we had this joke. I grew up in a little Southern Baptist church. We had this joke. Like, what's the Sunday school lesson about today? Is it about not drinking, not smoking, um, not having sex before you're married, or not gambling? I don't know why they throw gambling in there regularly. <clears throat> like... All these youth, all these teenagers with gambling problems, apparently. <clears throat> and the Sunday school board was like, we got to write more curriculums for the gamblers out there. Um, but we would joke, and we would say, like, what, you know, what's it going to be? Because it was all a bunch of don't do these things. And that's not what the Christian life is about. Instead, we have to change our desires. We have to understand how to replace our shallow desires with deeper desires. And it's important that as we repent and as we come to understand how to replace these desires, it's important that we don't just do behavior modification, which is just looking at what was wrong. It's really important that we look at why. Why did we choose that? And so I've introduced this to y'all before. I just want to remind you of it. It's what I call fruit to root. And it's understanding not just what the behavior is, but why. Like what's behind the heart? And I think the four G's um, help us with that almost more than anything else that I've been able to find. It's like a little four-line systematic theology. And some of you have this at home on a magnet and you're like, oh, I've got that and you haven't looked at it in months. Um, it would be helpful to look at. They're reminders to us that when we're struggling that God is good so I don't have to look elsewhere. What does that mean? What well, means for, for people who are struggling with lust? Or struggling looking at pornography. That they can remind themselves that God is better than what they are lusting after. Than the created thing that is that, in that moment in front of them in their desires. And they can be reminded in that moment when I choose lust over God. I'm saying that this created thing is better than my creator. I'll give you another example. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. Some of you, you are never satisfied. Some of you are never satisfied in your job. You're never satisfied um, in your family. You're always looking to the next thing. And this can be so helpful for you to come to understand that God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere, even meaning God is good today. So I can actually live in this day even though I hate this day. I don't have to long for tomorrow. I don't have to long for the weekend that God is good, even today. Uh, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Man, I don't know anybody who struggles with control. If y'all need that one, you can check it out. Um, (laughs) I greatly struggle with control. I always have a plan. I want to try to control everything. You know you struggle with control if you always measure yourself according to how many things you get crossed off your to-do list. God is in control even when your day doesn't go as you had planned it. Even when you don't feel successful. God is glorious so I don't have to fear others. How many of you struggle with anxiety? How many of you struggle with pleasing others? How many of you struggle with what others are thinking about you? God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. Finally, God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. It's been the one that's been most meaningful to me. I've had friends, and I see it even in my own life, who spend their whole lives trying to please others. I had a friend in seminary. I could just see that his his aggressive pace in life and all that he was trying to achieve trying to please a father who he never measured up. The ironic and crazy thing about that, I've known multiple pastors like this, they're trying to please their dads and they're running so hard in ministry and I look at their dads and their dads aren't even believers. I'm like, your dad doesn't even care. He doesn't even believe in what you're trying to accomplish. You don't have to please those who are around you. God is gracious. So I don't have to prove myself. Listen, repentance is so important in our life. It always reju- results in joy. I think too often we make excuses in our lives and that we end up not repenting. <laughs> I've got one friend. I'm, I'm not going to call him by name, but <clears throat> he, uh, we were talking about a struggle, and he said, um, I love this, he said, Brad, I just, I just came to determine that my moderator was broken, so I stopped trying to moderate, and I just quit. And if your moderator is broken, broken, then quit trying to moderate and just put sin to death. Just stop. Just quit trying to say, I'm going to do a little better. I'm going to try a little harder. Through the work of the Spirit, through the work of your community, put sin to death and repent. We need to be reminded how good life with Jesus really is. And He promises. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 tells us that He promises to us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. Finally, Paul tells us that we need to put on the new self. Look at verse 24 after we've repented and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To put on the new self. How do you do that? How do you put on that new self daily? How are you intentional in your life? What's your plan to put on Jesus? Because the world, they're going to put their stuff on you. I mean, you're going to pick it up in entertainment and the music you listen to. And the world's discipling you all the time. What's the plan that you have for putting on Jesus daily? Because we would all admit that we need him. Like, there's a Christian rapper that says, I need it it daily. He's talking about Jesus. We would all agree with that. It sounds good. But you probably aren't as far along in that maturation process and in your sanctification process as you would like to think you are. For a few reasons. Well, one, from a sociological perspective. Psychologists tell us that people who claim to be the most self-aware are actually the least self-aware. So if you're like, I, pro- I think I'm doing pretty good at putting on Jesus daily. It means you're probably one of the worst. If you're a person who says, no, I really need help in this area. I don't think I do a good job of putting off the world and putting on Jesus. Then there's probably hope. From a biblical perspective... The Bible tells us that we're more distorted than we know. That we're masters at self-deception and justifying. You start reading your Bible daily. You start spending time with the Lord. You start journaling. It only takes you about three days for pride just to start rising up in you. I got this thing, man. This is I've been I've been I I'm getting it done. You know, it's crazy. From a spiritual formation perspective, adults learn primarily by discovery, not by declaration. And I think it's why it's so important that we are putting on Jesus daily, not just depending on me or Chris or Jared or whoever's teaching on Sunday. I can guarantee you, whatever you hear here or any other church is not going to be enough to carry you throughout the week. It's not. Because sermons aren't good enough. Jesus wants a relationship with you. He doesn't just want good listeners. He wants someone who's in relationship, who's walking with him. Now listen, the last thing we need is another formula or another step. And so I'm very hesitant, very hesitant to float this out in front of you, but I'm going to take a risk. The elders have been praying, and we've, we've been asking this question What's it look like to make disciples of Jesus? Not just to do Sunday gatherings, not just to do missional communities, because I can tell you, one of the things that we've fallen prey to over the last five or six years is this kind of belief that if we get everybody to attend a Sunday gathering regularly, which my goodness in America is like a miracle in and of itself. Because most people are like, I show up, you know, I'll show up if, if there's not a good football game on, or it's just like all this other competition. But we've had this belief that if we could get people attending a gathering regularly, involved in a missional community where they're supporting others and also being loved, and there's some accountability, and then in a coffee group where they're studying the Scriptures, we've had this belief that disciples were going to be made. And that's not necessarily the truth. Because we can all just get in a mode where we're just like taking the next step, just in a routine, in a rut, just doing the next thing. This next year, we're going to launch the CBR journal. And I want to tell you a little bit about what this is. Somebody handed me one of these a few months ago. And uh, he's a friend. He's always giving me stuff. And I was like, I don't need another journal. I don't have room for this. I don't want this. I threw it away. He gave me two of them. I threw them away. I was like, I don't know what that is. You're always giving me crap. I don't want it. Threw it away. (laughs) Sorry. So... (laughs) The guy who actually created this, I had a chance to spend a day with him a few weeks ago. And uh, his name is Ted. And Ted said, I came to the distinct belief. And he said, I'll go to my grave believing this. And he caught my attention when he said that. I'll go to my grave believing that if we're called to make disciples, there's no greater step that we can take than to get people with Jesus' words daily. To get people talking to Jesus daily. I was like, I can't argue with that. It sounds simple, but what's your plan? And he's like, So, what's your plan for getting people with Jesus daily at your church? If you wanna make disciples, if you agree with that, what's your plan for getting your people with Jesus daily? I was like, Nah, we tell them they should. Um, Yeah, we don't really have a plan. And like all things in life that we know we need to do, we need a plan. Right? And we need accountability. And the CBR journal is nothing more than, than, it's not a Bible reading plan specifically, but it does have a plan that you can read. One New Testament chapter a day, one Old Testament chapter a day. And then within that, there's a place for you to journal. To journal about what you read. CBR stands for Community Bible Reading. So what's powerful about it is not only are you reading it alone, you're reading it with your whole church family who's reading these scriptures and you're preparing your hearts so that when you get together in a coffee group and somebody says, hey, what's the Spirit been teaching you? You can open up this little fancy journal right here and say, actually, um, I've been repenting of some things. God's been putting some things on my heart. This is what God and I have been talking about. It's an intentional plan to spend time with God. There's nothing magic about it. If you get behind in it, don't go back and try to read. Just read what's for today. It's not about trying to finish a plan. It's not about reading through the Bible in a year because you're not going to. You're going to read through the New Testament in a year. You're going to read through the Old Testament in three years. We believe that it makes sense. That we have a plan in our lives for spending time with Jesus daily. If you don't think that's important, don't buy one. We believe that this is not a silver bullet. We believe that you could very easily open this thing up and check every box in it. And write something down every day and not be closer to God if you're just treating it like a formula. But we pray that it might be a tool that it might be a means of communion so that a group of people are walking with Jesus daily and hearing from Jesus daily. Say, what's the big deal with that? We're busy. We're busy serving people. We're, we're, We're busy. We got a lot going on in our lives. Let me just offer you a warning and I'll close with this. Here's the warning. Sadly, the flagship Ephesian church would later be rebuked in Revelation 2. They'd later be rebuked by the risen Jesus. Because despite their impressive sacrificial ministry, sound familiar? Sound doctrine. They had forsaken their first love. And when I read that, you want to know the first thing that I thought about? That sounds like Mercy Hill Church. Sacrificial Decent doctrine? Are we rooted and grounded in a relationship with Jesus? When people say, tell me about your church, do you start telling them all the great things we do? you start telling them, well, our, our elders, they preach the word. We preach the books of the Bible. Or do we say, we are a people who are wholeheartedly committed to walking with Jesus? We have come to know Jesus. We have fallen in love with Him. And we want to see Him daily. We want to know Him daily. We think your life will be better if you can see Him. And if you can live life like He lives life. That is my hope and that is my prayer for my life. For our church's life. And as we come, as we come to His table today, as we think about communion. You know, it's really interesting that, that Jesus gives us this simple bread and this simple juice, ordinary. Like, should, have you ever thought, like, in a, at least in a Baptist church, don't you think it should be like a casserole? I mean, it's just so ordinary. And Jesus is so extraordinary. Like, why, do, is, why did Jesus choose such an ordinary means for us to remember him? And I think one of the things that we need most In the Christian church today, the last thing we need is another book with a word on it that sounds like an amazing word that's going to unlock the secrets of the Bible for us. What we need is what the church has always needed. We need to connect Jesus to the ordinary stuff of our Christian life. And to learn how to take Jesus, not just on a Sunday morning, but on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and to see him so clearly that when we sit down on Friday night to enjoy a good drink or to go out with our spouse or to go have fun, that we say as much pleasure as this is, Jesus has offered this pleasure to me, and Jesus is even better. Oh, that we might see the gift of Jesus, that we might love him more and more deeply. Pray with me. Those who are serving communion, come forward. Father, thank you for your love for us. God, thank you that you are so much more concerned with our character than our accomplishment. God, help us to truly believe that. God, help us to truly believe Love you more and more and more. God, replace our desires for such small things. God, replace those desires with a desire to know Jesus deeply. To walk with Him. That He would be the desire of our hearts. God, that our souls would long for Jesus more than we long for a football game or a vacation or even our spouse, or, or even more than we long to see our kids grow up and be successful, that we would long for Jesus more. And Jesus, that we might make you a priority in our life. Because we see your beauty. And that you might impact even the ordinary stuff. So that your name would be declared powerful and glorious in our lives.